Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Today, I'm joined by Kate Armstrong. Kate is an avid amateur mountaineer, skier, and sometimes ultra runner. Over the past 20 years, she's climbed across the UK and Alps and done two serious expeditions to the Himalaya. She's a writer. Her novel called The Storyteller was published in 2016 and longlisted for the Republic of Consciousness Prize for Small Presses. She's recently finished a creative writing MFA. She says she used to believe wholeheartedly in motivational sayings like, if you try hard enough, you can achieve anything. But through a series of devastating personal experiences, including the death of her partner Matthew in a climbing accident, she says she has now changed her mind. And so I wanted to talk to her today to ask her all about her sense of what resilience is. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I've been following this podcast since it first appeared. So uh, it's a a slightly intimidating joy to be able to talk to you. (laughs) Intimidating? (laughs) It's not a word. (laughs) I could say you've had so many wonderful guests that I both want to say something new and also want to uh, take on board everything that I've heard in previous episodes. Yes. Well, I knew when I started the podcast that it was something that I didn't have a fixed idea of what resilience was and so my perceptions of it change as I speak to people and it was always my intention to try and get a wide range of people on the podcast because I feel like some all of us have got something to say about resilience and I know that your story and your experiences and your views are just so valuable for what resilience is and how we get through the tough times. So thank you so much for coming on and agreeing to share your views and your stories. Thank you for inviting me. Been, we've kind of known each other virtually for a while on social media. I think that still that counts now as knowing each other and being friends. Counts. Instagram <laughs> comments definitely counts. <laughs> and I did know some of your background particularly that you lost Matthew in an accident but I haven't actually heard you talk about Matthew that much and I just wondered if you could give me a sense of who he was. Goodness me that is quite an emotional roller coaster to start with. Oh sorry. Um, No no. I was trying to ease us into it. (laughs) Failed miserably. I can ask about Um, the weather if we have to. (laughs) That's a little bit grey, though not as grey as it was last week when I was in the Cairngorms. Um, so Matthew and I were married for 12 years. We married in 2007. Uh, Matthew was a school teacher, schoolmaster. Um, he was a headmaster of a school out in Worcestershire. And we had got to know each other. We, we met in a chalet in the Alps and got to know each other over a few years before we got together. Um, and Matthew was always this larger-than-life, uh, loud, gregarious, uh, and incredibly mountain-focused person. I had never been near a mountain, really, when I first met Matthew. Um, and he sort of burst into my life, as he did into many people's lives, sort of carrying a rucksack, wearing hiking boots, and very enthusiastic that anyone should come and join him on this mountain that he was about to walk up. <laughs> He persuaded an awful lot of people who didn't like mountains at all that their lives would be changed if they just made it up to the top of Skidor and Gale Force winds or something. Um, and we um, we climbed together for a number of years. Uh, he taught me to climb and it then became my thing as, as well as his. And then um, I'm sure we'll get into this in more detail, but he uh, was injured in a climbing accident in summer 2019 and then died following that accident a few weeks after that accident which was obviously utterly devastating um as as big sudden grief is um but when i when i sort of look through my phone at at pictures or when i when i think of my best times with matthew they were always up on the top of some mountain somewhere aiming for just another summit that wasn't really quite on the route um and uh (laughs) Yeah, lots, lots of pictures of wonderful places on high peaks. Oh, he sounds amazing. But 
I mean, any sudden death is going to be traumatic, but what I found just so heartbreaking, particularly was the fact that you were there, weren't you, at the accident that he had and when he was injured? Yeah, so we were climbing in the Alps with with another good friend on a route that Matthew and I had actually climbed together the previous year as a sort of warm-up for a two-week holiday route on the French-Swiss border. Um, and we were climbing climbing that route, the three of us, almost at the end of the day of climbing. Um, and it was it was one of these very hot periods of weather, the way the way the Alps are having again this year. And I think the the ground was just less stable than it otherwise should have been. The permafrost in the Alps is melting and that results in a lot of high mountain routes becoming less stable. And we thought that we weren't on one of those routes. We thought we were on a route that was at low enough altitude it wouldn't be affected by that. But anyway, as he was climbing above me, he pulled on what looked as though it was the mountain. And this great big block about the size of a kitchen unit came off. Um, and without wanting to go into too much detail about it, as that piece of rock fell, a sort of freak thing happened that never really happened, which is it snapped the climbing rope. Um, and so we had a sort of panicked call for a helicopter and the rescue services in the French Alps are thankfully extremely good. And um, the helicopter came in within about an hour. Uh, we got off. Matthew was in hospital and hospital in Salange in the French Alps. And everything seemed fine. We were we were going around saying, thank goodness, we've been so incredibly lucky. He had torn ligaments in his ankle and his knee, but he hadn't broken anything. And, and his back was fine and his head was fine. Uh, and then three weeks later, out of the blue, he got a blood clot in his lungs from the swelling in his leg and died. And that was... It, it was just horrifically awful. My um, my initial response was complete numbness, um, and then over time that evolved as as grief evolves. And it's now so that was August 2019. So it's coming up to four years ago, and my my grief has definitely changed since then. Uh, but it's it's very much still there, and it's something to handle every day. Yes, I was wondering how you how you did approach it as as grief because we hear these phrases like oh time heals everything and from what you've described that just is such uh, the words don't describe just how awful that was what's happened and time is never going to heal that is it and so how how do you describe your grief as some people I've heard it like it's just something that you learn to live alongside or do you feel that it does get easier I think learning to live alongside is right. Um, one of the first things that some, I was very lucky with this. I was speaking to a doctor in the couple of weeks after Matthew died. And one of the things that she said to me was, you will never get over this, but you will learn to live around the scar. And that, that has turned out to be true. The other thing she said was, for most people, the first two years are usually the worst. And again, that was my experience. The first year, I was in a combination of a sort of numb, well, sort of practically, logically, obviously, I knew what had happened. If you said what's happened, I would say Matthew has died. But emotionally, my body and my brain didn't really seem to be able to absorb that. And so I was swinging between this sort of pragmatic, numb, apparently extremely resilient response. And people kept telling me how incredibly resilient I was being. Mm. But I was I was swinging between that and my body just being sort of taken over by this enormous emotion. And it sort of it hit me physically. I um, a lot of my hair fell out. Other bits of my hair that I had left started going white. I would sort of find myself literally collapsing on the ground in the middle of central London with this sort of sudden knees buckling under me as as my body sort of realized what was happening. As one time I thought I was having a heart attack and it, it was it was immensely physical and that and that process of sort of swinging between numb and intense waves of physicality lasted really through the first year and I was sort of counting off the 
months as I went and saying, I was documenting this on social media at the time, I think as well, but saying, okay, I survived a month, I survived two months, I survived nine months, I survived 11 months. And that sort of got me through the first year. And then it was actually in the second year that I couldn't cope anymore because that that was the point at which it felt like, oh, okay, this is now the rest of my life. Mm. And I didn't have those sort of yearly markers to aim at. And the denial that my brain was in had sort of begun to dissolve um, and the sort of reality had had hit. And so it was in year two that um, that I had a lot of depression came in and found myself unable to work. Um, and but that's but then since then it has it has definitely got better. So the the big waves of grief used to come daily for a long time and then every few days and nowadays there's probably a big one every month or so but uh, and and in between I I'm crying less and I'm going much more about my life so I think I think it's true that you do learn to live live next to it over time but that has been by no means an easy process I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to say to anyone who is newly grieving that this is easy it's it's not easy but it does in my experience get easier over time Mm. what's helped in that process rather than just just the passage of time unless that is all that's helped so I think some of it is just about the passage of time I think there are there are a lot there are lots of things that I wanted to do. So I, I went absolutely into resilience mode when Matthew died. I um, I went back to work within a month. I decided that doing lots of exercise would help me. So I went out and ran a half marathon that I was already entered for and remarkably ran a PB. Um, I went off and tried to do a self-supported um walk of the Bob Graham route around the lakes carrying tent. Um, So I did a whole load of things that I thought were the actions that would allow me to get through this. And I I spoke at his memorial service um, and none of those actions really helped. So I think one thing that helped was acknowledging that this event really was enormous Mm. and just something we might talk a little bit about definitions of resilience but this wasn't just something that that I could bounce back from it's it was a life-changing event and that meant that my life was changing and and so one thing was acceptance of what the reality was another thing was finding other people who'd gone through similar experiences so there's a there's a Facebook uh, group for grief which I got heavily involved with at at one point I I sought out other people in my life who had had experience of sort of bigger than usual grief or unexpected big grief and began to sort of learn learn a bit about who I was going to be in this new world in which I was someone who was widowed at age 39 which was not someone I had ever expected to be but it was someone that I had sort of become and I somehow had to start learning to live with that. Just going, thinking of those seeking out people that had had those similar experiences, it feels like we're not very good as a country or as a culture of talking about death. How did you find those people that had been around you and what was positive or helpful and what wasn't I mean I found it's obviously not the same circumstance but when my dad and my brother died in quick succession there were friends that just didn't didn't know what to say so they avoided me which is what it felt like but they just didn't know what to say how did the people around you react at the time in about as many different ways as there are many Mm. different people in my life I think lots of people were absolutely wonderful so there were some people in my life who stepped up the way I could never have in my best dreams hoped for people to step up step up there were a couple of friends who sort of took me to live in their houses for the first little while or they came to live with me and and literally for the first 10 days or so would sort of put food in front of me and hand me a fork um so there were some people who stepped up to an extraordinary level 
and and they weren't necessarily the people I would have expected. They weren't necessarily the people who had be previously been closest to me. Um, but some people stepped up to an extraordinary level. Um, and then at the same time, there were people who clearly didn't wanted wanted to be kind, but didn't know what to do. And that ranged from people who said, "We are going to give you privacy." We will be here for you whenever you're ready for us, even if that's in 10 years time, take as much time as you like, but we're not going to directly bother you. And that was a bit sad, but helpful to people who either assumed I had other people helping or people who didn't just didn't know what to say, who disappeared out of my life. And it's a I've I've talked to quite a lot of widows about this and and obviously, every bereavement is is enormous in its own way, and and I'm not comparing in terms of severity at all. But I think there are differences in the types of effect between certain types of bereavement. And one of the things people often talk about when people are widowed is your social circle changes because you no longer are someone with a partner, or your partner's friends to an extent drop away because they were their friends and not your friends. And also I found, as many people who are widowed find, that I had to move house. My financial status changed dramatically. And so so just an enormous number of elements changed in my life all at the same time. And that resulted in more people dropping away again as well. So if I look at who the people are who are most present in my life four years on versus who the people were that I spent most time with back in 2019. It's a very, very different group of people. And that's not, it's not to, it's not to criticize anyone. Um, and, and very many people have been wonderful. It's more to say that as the circumstances in my life changed, the group of people it was right to have around me also naturally changed. And there were some people where I, I found myself quite angry and say, well, how can you possibly not be in touch when you know this thing has happened to me? But people have their people have their reasons, whether it's whether it's not feeling capable or something about their own life that they don't want to talk about. Um, and and lots of people stepped up way beyond what I could have possibly expected. And you talked about this initial response of being this stoic resilient person going off doing things and it get it also sounded like there was an element of trying to just life carries on as normal how did that go and and when did that you said that it sounded like that didn't um, become a long-term successful plan so what happened there so I did it I did it pretty successfully actually for about the first four or five months um, and as I say, I, I, I went back to work. We had this enormous memorial service in Worcester, um, which had about 1300 people at it. And I stood up and spoke at that. And everyone came up afterwards and said, you were so incredible. I don't know how you can do that. Um, and I did I did a load of sporting stuff. Um, but then my ability to it, it, basically reality hadn't set in. And when when reality set in, um, it's it's all sort of started to collapse, and I ended up. Um, so I, I had had a serious health condition for getting on for a decade before Matthew had died, and that that health condition had come back. And also, let's let's um, let's talk about this a little bit as well. So Matthew's death wasn't the only thing that happened in my life in in 2019. So um, Matthew died in August, but in at the end of May, I had been climbing in the Himalaya and got caught up. Well, I say got caught up in, but there were 12 of us on an expedition in the Himalaya and there was an accident in which eight of the group died. And handling the emotional impact of that and the fact that it became global front page news was obviously extraordinarily difficult. Nothing like as difficult for me as for the families of those who had died, but but that was that was an enormous emotional event to be ha- to be handling in early summer 2019. And then there was the accident with Matthew, and then the relief that 
he had survived and he was okay and then his death and then my and then my health collapsed and so i was trying to handle all of these things at the same time in a resilient way the way that i thought people thought i should be doing um and it it did work for a few months and then i found that my energy levels were extraordinarily low my previous illness came back with a vengeance it didn't help that covid hit and so being in the early lockdowns living on my own um newly widowed was pretty bad um i think is probably is probably an understatement so i don't I think there's a word to describe how <laughs> yeah. awful the circumstances are I'm so sorry and, for you and it's i mean it's I, i'm sort of there are always people who've had more difficult circumstances um or just differently difficult circumstances but it was it was very very hard um and then yes at the end of at the end of that year of trying to hold it together and people telling me how wonderfully well i was doing um i ended up completely exhausted having to stop work completely i didn't work for the next 18 months and really focusing on rest um getting a lot of therapy um i was taking some medication um and doing a lot of uh well-being practices of various types but but really giving myself the space to rec- both recover and also find out what direction my life was going to be going in next because i had tried i tried the thing of i'm going to be resilient i'm going to bounce back from this i'm going to become the woman who can overcome all of this and go out and continue along the same path and what had become evident was that that was just not possible <laughs> um and so i then had a year of intensely trying to sort of step all the way back and work out what might come next um and i'm still in that process uh a couple of years on from that as well of sort of saying who am i now under these new circumstances and where do i go from here mm. and when that year in or maybe slightly less when those resilient looking practices weren't working how did you feel did you feel that you were failing in some way that you weren't coping well or did you have this ideal view of what it should look like your your grief at that point it was a mixed bag so i mean in a way i even though i was still a bit in denial i was certainly in a de- in denial about the sort of over, overall impact of everything that happened in my life in 2019 even though i was in denial i was able to say actually such a lot has happened that it's okay that i can't function um i was sort of able to calibrate it a little bit but at the same time i wanted i, I it, it sounds quite weird i almost wanted for matthew's sake to be able to say i did it um he always used to tell me how wonderful i was at all sorts of things which is a, a wonderful thing for a husband to say and and i almost wanted to be able to sort of stay up to whichever mountain he was on um see i'm doing this I'm managing this without you. And and so there was a, there was an expectation I I put on myself. Um but I was also and so I I did I did feel as though I'd failed actually. There's a there's a an American writer called Emmy Neatfelt who's written a book called Acceptance. I don't know if you know it. No, I don't. It's a, so it's a memoir about overcoming incredibly difficult life experiences and and how the narrative that the world often wants to hear is um i overcame all of these things and i'm a stronger person for it and you too can overcome the difficult things in your life and and she wrote this she wrote this book um to to chart to chart her journey of coming to realize that 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 beautiful overcoming trajectory isn't always true but i also had that need to prove that i could overcome all of these things like i'd been given some task and i had to prove i'd overcome it and i found a line of hers recently which which fitted very well with with what i was feeling which was and let me try and get this right 
I'd bought into the intoxicating freedom that I was master of my own fate. And when it turned out, when it turned out I wasn't, I felt like I'd failed or it felt like the failure was personal. That's the quotation, I think. And that, and that was it. I, I both knew that I was justified in falling apart. Um, and also felt like if I was better at resilience, then somehow I would have come through this without falling apart, if that makes mm. sense. Mm. And going into that definition of resilience, like what, what does that look like now for you as a, a definition? So I've got, I think I've become very basic about it over the years. So there is, I mean, there is the dictionary definition and it does say it's about bouncing back. And that's the definition that's based on the linguistic history of the word. And, I, and that's fine. That's obviously what it means. But I don't find that necessarily very helpful day to day. So the the definition I've tended to land on is it's about how well we handle difficult situations in life and whether we are handling them in a way that is ultimately helpful and useful to us or whether we're handling them in a way that is more toxic to us. But it's about the ability to handle difficult situations well. It's not about bouncing back. And I think, well, I think it's sometimes about bouncing back. Let me qualify that. So um, there are, I think it depends on the situation you find yourself in. So there are some situations like, uh, I mean, I've, I've run a number of marathons. I haven't run races as long as yours, but I've, I've run a number of marathons. And, and there's definitely a resilient thing in a marathon where it's about you keep going, motivate yourself one foot in front of another, just get to the next mile. Um, you can do this. You're a legend. All the, all of the stuff you tell yourself to get to the end of a marathon. And it's brilliant for a marathon. Um, and, and, potentially for an ultramarathon as well, although health becomes more important in that. But in, in that context, that model of resilience, I think, works. It also works for some other types of life setback. So I had some I had some surgery on my spine a few months ago, and it's not major surgery, but it's surgery that has affected my life for a few months. And that, again, is the sort of setback in which that bouncing back resilience model makes sense because I will be able to get back to, fingers crossed, I will be able to get back to the same sorts of physical activities that I was doing before. And so, and that's also then about do the physio a day at a time, continue to be positive. All of that sort of stuff still works. So I think, I think the bouncing back model of resilience works in some circumstances, but when you, when you're hit by a life event or a series of life events which are so big that they change the course of your life and change the course of who you are, bouncing back feels to me as though it becomes a bit of a nonsense because it's it's impossible. To, it's, it's life-changing. That's the mm. definition of life-changing. And so why would, why would you want to bounce back to what it was previously Instead, it's about finding a way to accept the new reality you find yourself in and to build the direction of your life from there. And, and as I say that, I'm conscious that it sounds like something that it's relatively straightforward to do. It's not. It's really not. <laughs> um, but, but the idea that after everything that happened in 2019, including Matthew's death, the appropriate thing is for me to go back to being the way I was before just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. No, it doesn't. I think when you were saying about those bouncing back and I was thinking, of, yeah, there's certain situations. I was thinking of like a job application that got rejected or something yeah. like that. Oh, yes, yeah, exactly. we, we can turn this into a positive and we'll come back stronger. But it just doesn't work, does it, for those traumatic or life-changing events? Yeah, I mean, it, it works for a, a job application or a race you can't finish or the sort of injury from which it's possible to be OK again. Or, or I mean, the, the list will be different for different people because different things affect different people in to a different extent. And it's, it's very individual. But if it's a life changing experience, then by definition, your life is going to change. I think when you were talking about finding a way to cope, whether that would be 
what's helpful and then I think you use the word toxic I mean I would still give you some time to do some unhelpful things in those aftermath years when you've been through what you went through in 2019 I mean there surely isn't a pressure that we have to be starting those helpful practices straight away no I don't think so and I think it's also impossible I mean I did I did a lot of things that weren't helpful in those first I mean I still do but in those first couple of years in particular and the and the least helpful of those was probably trying to go back to the way things had been before or trying to follow other people's expectations and not my own reality um I mean we all do unhelpful things all the time what I have so I, I was I was thinking about I thinking the other day do I know what direction I want my life to go in and the answer is I haven't a clue at the moment I and there are lots of things that I'm doing but I don't have the same sense of myself and my life that I had in early 2019 and so Rather than looking ahead and getting frightened by that, what one thing that does help, one thing I find useful is to say, is what I am doing right now helpful for my recovery? So I find the idea of is this helpful or not to be a useful sort of compass bearing. But absolutely, I I get lost and wander off and do unhelpful things all the time. But ultimately, I think I will or I do and I will always come back to what are the things that are helpful simply because it feels like I don't have any other option, if that makes sense. I can't go back to what I was trying to do before. I've absolutely tried and I can't do it. And so it is about saying, even though I don't know where I'm going, even though this mountain around me is extremely murky and I can't see whether this is leading me anywhere or not, do I am I confident that this thing I'm doing right now is good for me? And that might be as much as actually I think I need to rest today. I'm pretty confident that resting today is what I need. Or regular nutritional eating remains important, however much I don't know about my life. And so it can be very, very small things. But yes, absolutely, the permission to get stuff wrong is is always there. Nobody mm. does this thing, this sort of thing perfectly. Good. <laughs> <laughs> slightly worried that I'd had quite a lot of the unhelpful days. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people who would say it's about progress, not perfection. Um, and um, I would, I would absolutely, uh, I would absolutely follow. And perfection becomes a stick to beat ourselves with. And that's definitely not useful. No, I, I kind of go by perfection doesn't exist. I don't need to worry about that anymore. <laughs> but I guess progress, I mean, as well that for me that can put a bit of pressure on that I always need to be doing achieving or striving for something but I liked how you use the example of just resting that's that's progress well I, t- I that's how I took your words anyway yeah no that, that's exactly how I meant them um often I mean I, in my life at the moment often what I am doing is resting in order to so there are there are enormous physiological things that happen with big grief and there's obviously an awful enormous amount of emotion to be absorbed as well and in the context of what feels like every facet of my life changing around me there's also an emotional absorption um phase i hope it's a phase (laughs) um it's probably the rest of my life um (laughs) and so resting is providing the environment in which that if, if i want to tell myself that my rest is useful then resting is providing the environment in which that can happen and one of the things that i see now is that you are still seem to love nature you've just been telling me about your whirlwind trip up to the kangoms and i just wondered what your relationship was with nature because well I often hear it described as this sanctuary for people and where we go to heal it really strikes me that you've had some really traumatic experiences in the mountains and I just wondered what that felt like now and whether that was something that you struggled going back to. That's a very perceptive question. Um, Oddly enough I haven't well, I've, I have struggled going back to it, but it's been absolutely the right thing to do to go back. And I knew that from the start. So I remember thinking, so the, the accident in India 
happened in, I think, the 26th of May, 2019. And the four of us who weren't involved didn't know it had happened for a couple of days because we were on an adjacent mountain and the um, radio communications were so bad we hadn't been expecting to hear from the other group. So we were not overly alarmed initially when we didn't hear from them. But then we had... Once we already, once we knew that an accident must have happened and they must be dead, we had four days sitting in this unbelievably gorgeous remote Himalayan valley um, with no sat phone because sat phones are illegal in that part of the Indian Himalaya. Um, and so we literally had to sort of write a note onto a piece of paper, give it to one of the high altitude porters and say, run the 36 hours to the point where the, where the nearest phone signal is and then call someone and get us some helicopters in. Um, so we had these four days sitting in this, in this remote valley waiting for rescue to come in. And I remember, I remember sitting there just looking around thinking these, then the weather was perfect. It was just perfect. And I, I was sitting there thinking these, these mountains have killed our friends. And at the same time, this is the most beautiful place that I have ever been. And I can feel my heart rate going up even just talking about it. It was it was a, a well, another life changing experience. And something similar happened after Matthew's death. So Matthew actually died from a blood clot, um, not actually on the mountain, but it, but in my in my mind, I always think he he died on a mountain because it's it was so related to obviously so related to the accident that we'd had. And from the very beginning, I wanted to go back to the mountains. I wanted to be in the mountains because that was where I was going to feel closest to him. And he is he's also buried in the Lake District. And whenever I feel the sort of desperate urge to connect I get on the train to the Lake District from London um, because somehow the the glorious place of nature is also the place where I can feel closest to him it, it all becomes a little bit it all becomes a little bit woo-woo and um, and I don't particularly mean it that way but but I, I felt that draw to being in the mountains or being in the hills in the lakes from the start because because Matthew was there. So that's the place where I where I feel him most strongly. And I think it's also the the experiences because they were so dramatic and outside the experience of most of the people around me, I I felt quite isolated from people. I felt like this sort of enormous thing had happened and I was it just sounds very dramatic and I've got over it a bit now, but I felt a bit as though I'd sort of been set apart from the human race by all of this stuff that had happened in quick succession. And what what I wanted when I felt like that was to go and be on top of a mountain in bad weather, as though the sort of the wind and the hail, um, sort of thing you can safely do in the lakes, um, as though the wind and the hail would somehow be at one with my sense of of devastation. So I think that there's something about the extremes of weather in the mountains somehow mapped against the extremes of emotions that I was feeling as well. And also, I, I just, I still just love being there. I mean, this, this trip to the Cairngorms that you, that you mentioned was absurd. It was inspired by a friend of mine, a woman called Heather Dorr, um, who paints wonderful pictures. Um, who did a similar and writes thing beautiful books as well. And writes beautiful <laughs> books, exactly. Um, so Heather said to me in passing, you know, it's possible. I've been complaining about not getting to Scotland. And she said in passing, you know, it's possible to get up on the sleeper, spend the night in the Cairngorms and get the sleeper down again. So I did that last week. And I mean, she's right. It's possible. <laughs> not sure it's a great <laughs> idea. Um, but it's possible. And it was wonderful. And I felt a sort of freedom up there that is no longer about me against the devastation of the universe um, and much more about feeling the breath in my lungs, feeling the relief that I am bouncing back from my surgery. And I can, in fact, now carry a rucksack and go and camp in the middle of the Cairngorms. And yeah, nature is, is this wonderful, beautiful place to be, but it's it's not in my head 
the sort of nature anything green will always be good for you there there is a sort of there there is a reality about mountains and i'm sure about oceans as well but i don't know anything about sailing but there's a reality about mountains that they are stunningly beautiful and they also kill people mm-hmm. and it's a sort of it's it always it always feels to me like sort of an encapsulation of life taken to its extremes um and and that's something very different i think from spend time in nature it might alleviate your depression which is obviously also very real for many people mm. You speak so beautifully about the mountains and the weather then. And I wondered if I could ask you about the book that you are writing, or is this finished? I believe you've got a memoir. It's not finished. Oh, right, it's okay. Not finished. <laughs> <laughs> it's not finished. Um, I, in fact, I'm, having, I'm um, being mentored at the moment by a fabulous writer, and he sent me an email this morning um, saying, Kate, by the end of this draft, you will have a book, but it won't be the book. Oh, okay. We're um, at that stage. <laughs> and he's right. Um, so I'm, I, but I am. I'm going to, I'm going to say this out loud because it helps it all feel more real. I'm writing a memoir which is currently um, nominally called Beyond the Mountain, and it's, it is about exactly these problem, the, these issues. I think there is the, there is the view out there that either we climb mountains for the great peace that it gives us. Or we climb the mountain of life and it's all about achievement and conquering and overcoming difficulty to reach the sunlit summit. And it's often used, it's often used in that way. I think when people are talking about, about mountaineering. And what I wanted to write was something that said, yes, mountaineering is absolutely a fabulous, wonderful metaphor for life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about navigating and finding our way through difficulties and the weather changes around us and we sort of clamber along this ridge and there is a summit ahead of us but it's also about the catastrophic accidents that can happen the fact that we may think that we're close to our goal and then something terrible happens and the fact as well that you can't you can't control the outcome on a big mountain so one there are many differences between the Himalaya and the Lake District Um, and I'm not in any way a pro-Himalayan climber but I have been there a couple of times and one of the things about climbing in the Himalaya is that your chances of guaranteeing success you can't guarantee success you are entirely dependent on snow conditions weather conditions the extent to which you acclimatize there's there's just so many things which are out of your control and so one of the things the book does is to take this metaphor of Himalayan climbing and say, yes, you may do all of the preparation. You may you may have come through so many things even to get to the foot of this mountain. You may deserve the summit, but you cannot control the outcome. You can control the process of what you do, but you can't control the outcome. I find myself getting very excited about the book as I talk about it, but it's um, it's very much in, it's very much in progress. Oh, okay. uh, and yeah. and when did you start writing the book? Is this something that's come later, like around recently that you started writing? Were you writing through the last few years? So it actually goes back a little bit further than that. So I so I became very ill in so I went I went to the Himalaya in 2010 to a mountain called Amadablam, which is a very very beautiful mountain um, in the Khumbu Valley, about I don't know ten miles from Everest, and and I was absolutely at that point in the mindset of high flying corporate career. What I do next is get to the summit of a Himalayan peak. And um, and I became very ill about six months after that and and spent years trying to recover from that illness. It started as burnout and then it became then it became rather more serious. And so I'd got I'd got this idea before I went back to the Himalaya in 2019 that I was going to write this triumphant overcoming resilience story. This is where it starts from, that says I went to the Himalaya once, didn't quite get to the summit of my mountain, became very ill, but I worked my way back. I became well. I recovered. I went back to the Himalaya and then I climbed an even bigger, more beautiful mountain. And therefore I have recovered. This is a, this is a tale of resilience. And and I was planning to write that book before I went to India. Um, I'm making notes for it before I went to India. And then 
obviously the accident in India happened, my whole conception of the world and whether people get what they deserve in life and resilience changed with that Himalayan accident. So I then decided I was going to write a book about how we um, don't necessarily get to choose the outcome, however much we however much we put in the training and um, start climbing the mountains. And I actually discussed that with Matthew. I, I We were driving to the Alps and I was talking to him about this book I was going to write. Um, and I may I may be about to cry. I'm sure listeners can cope with that. Um, and and we were we were sitting in the car driving to the Alps, and I was saying I'm, I'm going to write this book, and it's it's about how we don't how we don't necessarily get what we what we want and what we deserve despite all the effort. And I remember him sort of putting his hand on my knee while he was driving and saying, "I think you should write that book, and I hope you'll dedicate it to me." Oh. And um, and so I was going to write that and I'd actually sent a proposal off to publishers and then the, the accident with Matthew happened and then he died. And I, I had to write back to the, to, not to publishers, to editors, to agents. And I actually wrote back to the agents and said, I'm terribly sorry. You asked for a bigger proposal on this, but I can't do it for you. My husband's just died. And so the book was already there in various forms before Matthew died, but I've been, I've been working on it more days than not ever since his death. It was sort of something to hold on to and also a way of making meaning. I don't I don't know whether you have this in your writing as well, but I I felt like so much has happened and I, I needed to make some sort of meaning out of that. And it was no longer the traditional life affirming trajectory of yes, you can overcome everything. It became something more complicated than that. And and one of the things that is a thread of where my life is going at the moment is whatever may or may not happen to this book in time. Uh, it's the process of working out that story in words and working out some sort of making some sort of sense of everything through the medium of writing about it. I can't wait for your book, but it sounds <laughs> very <laughs> there's so much that's similar in the process. So my initial book that I was writing was all about these glorious Pennine Way running records and I was going to pop up at the end in my little chapter of resilience and get through and at the time there weren't any women that had run the Pennine Way outside of the um the spine race so that was the book that I started and then along the way I became very ill I lost my health and and I can't run again and I wrote as a more for processing, I definitely didn't feel like I could find any meaning in it at the time. And I still don't think I can. But I suppose really what I struggled with was because it didn't have that ending of me coming back and doing something amazing with my running. For me, I kind of felt like the end of the book because, well, I can't possibly publish it. It's fizzled mm. out into, well, I can't run. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that but actually the way that I finished it was trying to I guess maybe not make sense but really speak about what happens when we can't achieve things and why do we need to achieve things such as running incredible distances or whether it's climbing mountains so that was really yeah where I came with my book but it definitely changed from what I'd set out and the intention that I I set out with it. And I think that's the, I hope publishing is going in this direction as well. I think it is a little bit. But I think that's also the more interesting question of when everything goes wrong, what do we do? And how do we navigate that reality of life not being what it is? We're getting very deep here, but life not being what what we had hoped it would be and I mean you've talked a lot to a lot of people on this podcast about sort of techniques for dealing with difficult situations whether it's breathing techniques or yoga or tai chi or um, various bilateral exercises um, HRV but how is it that we get through these situations because the the stories of great overcoming are 
they're they're fabulous and I love them as much as the next person. I absolutely do. But but when everything fell apart in my life, what I was looking for was the stories that say, how do we navigate this and continue in a in a way that is rich and meaningful and also acknowledges all of the difficulty and all of the darkness. And yeah, so all of that is to say, um, I'm sure that your book is a better book for not having the neatly tied in a bow ending. <laughs> yes, I did feel a pressure, even if it wasn't that I could run. I was like, oh, I need to end this book by going and walking the Pelang Way. And now I feel quite strongly that I don't need to do that. I need to say the truth, really, of what what's happened and and how I feel about that is really how it ends. Yeah, there's there's a wonderful book that came out. I, I'm one of those people who's constantly recommending books to people. But there's there's a wonderful book that came out a couple of weeks ago by a woman called Polly Atkin. I don't know whether you know this. I've name. just it landed in, through my letterbox uh, yes. yesterday, so I haven't it's, read it yet. But I was also going to get Polly on the podcast if she'll come on. <laughs> It's it's beautifully green. And for those who don't know it, it's called Some of Us Just Fall. And it's about the experience of being in nature with chronic illnesses that are not going to resolve simply through while swimming. Um, And it's and it's it's a fabulous book, but it's it absolutely doesn't have the the pretty conclusion Mm. very deliberately. And I have also had previous guests on and future guests arranged that do have chronic illnesses and I feel like I found so much about resilience from my chronic illness and I didn't know if I was going to get better statistically it didn't look like I was going to get better when I was bed bound with ME chronic fatigue syndrome so I feel like it's so important to hear those stories of when it isn't about do this work and you'll get better and then you can go and climb Everest or whichever mountain it is that you choose. So yes, I'm really looking forward to reading her book and and I, I really want to speak to people with chronic illnesses. I feel like it's a very valuable lessons that we can learn and share. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of what, uh, so I, I also have a, a chronic illness and a lot of what I learned in the decade of dealing with that before Matthew's death is stuff that I was then able to apply in the aftermath of his death. Um, there were a whole range of techniques for dealing with different difficult circumstances, which I already knew. So I think there is this this is obvious and it doesn't need me to say it, but but there's an enormous amount that people with chronic illness have to teach people who are newly dealing with difficult situations. Mm. Yeah, definitely. What were some of the things that um, you were referring to there when you said techniques that had helped? Um, So I sort of ran through everything over the years. So I trained as as a yoga teacher. Um, I'll take that box as well. (laughs) um, I I didn't actually qualify, but I did do the training. Um, I learned how to treat my body much better in terms of regular nutritional eating, regular sleeping, exercise for pleasure rather than exercise in order to get fitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot of uh, Qigong and Tai Chi and sort of various Chinese meditative things. Um, I used medication, I used therapy, I used breathing exercises. I got into the habit of journaling or writing morning pages to sort of clearing my head in the morning by getting everything in it out onto the page which will never see the light of day anywhere um and also this is this one sort of divides divides people but I like it it works for me um being grateful for things that are going well so I for the last five years or so I've I've had a whatsapp group with a series of friends um, where every evening we write a list of things that we're grateful for, five things that we're grateful for in that day to each other, and and I did it on the I did it on the night that Matthew died, and it's not when people talk about gratitude, it often can come across I think or as 
deny your problems, you should be grateful, other people have it much worse. And I don't mean it in that sense at all. But I do think that, well, my personal experience was even on the very, very darkest days, and and the day of Matthew's death was, I hope, as dark as my life ever gets, um, there is a sort of glint of hope from saying, yes, almost everything is dark, but there are these little chinks of light. And one of those chinks of light on the 11th of August 2019 was I was lucky enough to be married to this man for these last 12 years. So gratitude actually is is one that I find consistently very useful. The, the other thing, though, is that I've had so many things recommended to me over the years as panaceas of sort of, have you tried yoga or breathing exercise or whatever from people who don't necessarily know what they're talking about? <laughs> um, and what I've discovered is all of these things do work, but none of them works immediately. And so some of them are things that I've been practicing now for seven, eight, ten years, and I can feel the difference, but they have taken but they work they work very slowly. They're a sort of rewiring of our brains often or rewiring of our approaches to life. And that is a very slow process. It's not a magic wand. So I, w- I wouldn't say anything is a magic wand, but there are lots of techniques that I have found progressively helpful over the years. Yes. And it sounds like we've been down similar paths with those explorations. I think one of the things that I've struggled with, um, both through health and other difficult times, it's really what's helped me is giving up trying to be in control of kind of where my life was going what it was going to look like who I was going to be with and yes it's been like you you just touched on those rewiring of the brain and I think often I was focusing on the physical practices and not really looking deeper into what was going on inside and the perfectionism or the um, yeah, being in control, I think, is the way that I would describe it. And and then that's what I was grieving as well. The life that I had planned out wasn't going to happen. There's a thing, have you come across the term spiritual bypassing as well? I'm sure lots of people will have done, but sort of the idea that I've, I've met it a lot in yoga circles, the idea that if somehow you become the perfect yogi and meditate a lot, then you won't have to confront the different difficult things in your life. You'll sort of float past them. And it works for people, I think, in general for a little while, and then it suddenly doesn't anymore. And so that sense of ultimately, ultimately, I think we have to face the difficult stuff and walk through it. And the the sort of the green pastures of acceptance are hopefully the other side, but you can't guarantee that. You can't guarantee what it's going to look like, but still the only way is through the difficult stuff with all of the kindness and all of the practices we can have and as many wonderful people around us as possible but we do have to go through Mm. and it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying in my experience anyway Uh, yes and you always well I'm always looking for some escape route some tunnel underneath or shortcut or something so that I don't have to go whenever I think of that and I have done in the past I've I think of that book going on a bear hunt where you can't go around it that's my spiritual practice is that book um yes yeah I definitely feel that I I actually went to a a talk last night. It was just an evening called um, Sisterhood Social in Sheffield that my friend was speaking at. And there was a death doula there who helps families or people as they are coming to the end of life. And she was talking, one of the phrases that she said that struck with me was that um, we can use death to teach us how to live more. And I wondered if there was ways and I'm not I'm not asking you what are the positives clearly not but are there ways that you feel that life has has changed maybe become richer I'm not sure if that's the right word but because of these experiences that you've gone through yes there definitely are and it's the sort of it's the thing that's often called post-traumatic growth isn't it that sense that we gain something from these experiences um it doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't happen without pain. Um, but I have gained things. And so some of them are 
are very purely practical, like um, I did nearly all of my mountain stuff with Matthew because I had him to do stuff with. So we did stuff together. So I've gained a lot of solo mountain skills since Matthew died that I didn't have before he died. And so there are sort of practical things like that. But it's more... I've, well, I, in the process, it's, it's sort of difficult to define. In the process of having become a very, very different person, I have, I think, gained a lot of compassion for myself. I hope compassion for other people as well. Certainly a much greater understanding of what the stuff is that life can throw at people. So if we'd been having this conversation a decade ago, I'd have been telling you that I basically believed that if you work hard enough, you get what you deserve. And and I would say, and I sort of look back now with sort of creeping horror that I would have ever said that, but I would not say that now. So I think I have a much greater tolerance, um, not tolerance, uh, much greater compassion for people who are in very difficult circumstances, because I have more of a sense of the things that can happen to to put you there. So that that has been sort of expanded in me. I've also got more of a sense of who I want to be as Kate in the world. So I've spent many, many years following various trajectories that were sort of laid out for me. And I'm quite enjoying them and doing very well at them. But I was never really being me. I was being this sort of type of person who did this type of thing. And because so much of that was sort of smashed into smithereens, I've been having to go through this often horrendous process of trying to rebuild my life. And there is growth coming from the fact there is post-traumatic growth coming from the experience of having to do that. So I feel as though I'm I'm finding a path in my life. It sounds very grand, but I feel as though I'm finding a path in my life which is uniquely about who I can be and how I can show up in the world. And that was not what I was doing to anything like the extent five or ten years ago. So there are, I mean, there are absolutely good things. And at the same time, those good things do not in any way cancel out the pain, but they, but they coexist. Um, and I think that's the, I think that's the reality of, of what life is. It's not, it's not simple and it's, and it's not black and white. And sometimes the mountains you love kill people. That's, um, that's the reality. And I think being able to look that reality in the face and live with it in a kind, compassionate, gentle way. Um, I mean, if we come full circle to what resilience is, I think that's, that would be a slightly more floaty, different definition of resilience as well. Mm. And do you feel that if we had this conversation in another four years, that things you might even have new perspectives and we'll have a different conversation on it? I quite like to think that my, my views change and evolve. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I mean, I, I feel at the moment as though I'm changing faster than at any other point. Oh, in my really? Life. <laughs> Just because so much has happened. I'm trying to absorb so much. Um, and so I'm absolutely sure that in four years time, it will be a slightly different conversation. But I, but I don't think that I, I, I would like to think that it would be a deeper version of the same mm, conversation. Yes. Not a radical change in direction. It, it feels. I feel pretty grounded in the fact that this is the direction that my life is now going in. Not in, not in terms of practical external stuff. I've got no idea where that stuff's going. But in terms of who I am as a person and what matters to me and what I believe about the world, um, I would like to think that that direction is is mm. going to be fairly consistent over the next four years. I don't know. We can try again in four years' time. <laughs> Who knows what I'll be doing in four years' time. <laughs> I may have finished my book by then. <laughs> may have finally got mine out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kate.
Kate, thank you so much. It's felt a real privilege to speak to you and get to ask these really deep questions for somebody that I've never spoken to face to face. <laughs> but we're it's both introverts. <laughs> we're introverts who don't need small talk. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. In- introverts who've, who've experienced big things and don't and don't need small talk. Um, it's it's such a pleasure. I, we've sort of skirted around each other on social media for so many years, so it's it is lovely um, finally to speak to you. And I need to get myself organised and come up to the Peak District and maybe yes, you do take the tents out onto a hill for a night. And um, if you want the wild weather, come up now and come this weekend. <laughs> I had I had thunderstorms forecast in the Cairngorms last week. I've had my fill of wild weather. For a while. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Just checking. But thank you. Yes, it has felt such a privilege to talk to you, and uh, thank you so much for sharing what you have done. And I really can't wait for your book. Good luck with that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast. Hold up. 